Exodus so far has been kind of kind of a pre-function. It's been the introduction. Um, it's been the beginning, and it's all led up to what's about to happen. And so we've seen the situation that Israel finds themselves in, um, being enslaved to Egypt and serving under, uh, under a harsh pharaoh, that pharaoh putting their children to death to control the population, to keep them from growing anymore, um, Moses miraculously escaping death and then um, you know, trying to stand up for, uh, for Israel and fleeing to the wilderness and then being called by God. And all of this, though, has been amping up uh, to the section that we're going to cover tonight. And I can't stress how unique the section we're going to look at tonight is compared to almost the rest of the scriptures. Um, it's not uncommon for there to be a guy like Moses. Over and over again, God selects a leader, chooses a prophet, anoints a king, raises up a ruler or a judge or these types of things. And Moses is in some ways um, prototypical for much of that. In fact, he, he as prophet before ruler, that pattern of a man of God speaking for God, thus says the Lord against a wicked ruler, becomes a pattern. However, usually when that happens, the reference to Israel, the people of God, is relatively present and strong. And for the next four chapters that we look at tonight, they're barely a footnote. The focus isn't really on Israel. Their circumstances have laid out. The deliverer has been raised up. At the end of this, they will be delivered. But for the four chapters we look at tonight, there are only really two characters. There is Moses and there is Pharaoh. Not only is that unique, but we also have this um, selection of plagues. We'll look at nine tonight. They're really all just leading up to the tenth plague. Uh, but we're going to look at just the first nine. And it's intriguing to me that although some of the imagery we see in these plagues occur in other places, sometimes there will be um, overlaps to other things we find in later prophetic ministries, like in First and Second Kings or in the book of Revelation imagery there. Anything that resembles the ten plagues, which I'll put in quotations, um, that we don't actually find. They're somewhat unique. Um, in fact, many of the plagues that are featured here are, are once, once in history, there's really nothing to compare them to. There's a plague of frogs, for example. Frogs don't occur very often in the Bible, but they do here. And so it's unique for all these reasons. And then... On the other hand, as I mentioned already, there's some ways where it's not unique. And the first and only one I want you to get before we actually get into the text is that we have to keep in mind that the authors of Scripture um, are experts at their craft. Okay? You can't think of the Bible as if somebody is just stream of consciousness writing it down. It constantly shows, um, shows extensive use of structure and patterns um, it's a book that rewards you for reading closely, okay? And the plagues manifest that in a tremendous way. I mean, first, we have to recognize just the issue, okay? So what happens here, historically, 
is basically repeated ten times over, right? Moses comes as God's representative, asks, let my people go. Pharaoh resists. He says, if you do this, there's going to be this consequence. The consequence happens. Pharaoh summons Moses again and says, make this go away. And he says, will you let them go? And he says, yes. And then he recants and turns around. The pattern is over and over and over again. But as we'll see, the text telling of this are actually relatively unique. And even where there is a rigid pattern, which I'll show you in just a second, even that isn't, um, isn't a 100% pattern. It's not like it's just been cut and pasted. And I think there's a couple of reasons that we should keep in mind that keeps all of those things in tensions. Um, one, uh, history can have patterns. There's World War I, there's also World War II. But life is life. And so things happen differently as they roll out. But on top of that, when you're trying to commit something to paper, and remember that the Bible is history, sure, but it's not merely history. It's theological history. It has a purpose and a point. It's not just merely trying to tell you what happened. It's trying to show you who God is. And no place is that more real than in the chapters we'll cover tonight because that's a repeated refrain of what's going on here. Um, and so, so those intentions kind of show their hands in the structure. Um, but the other thing it does is it makes it much more readable, right? Because if we just read the same pattern over and over again, even if you didn't notice, some part of your brain would, and you start to speed up how you read. And you'd, start, you'd go, okay, this plague, that plague, the other plague, and it'd just become a list. And let's just recognize tonight that that's not what we have. The Bible doesn't just start here and say, and God brought ten plagues on Egypt and just lists them and then moves on with the story, okay? And so the structure that we'll see, the patterns, the repeated imagery, and even the changes in, in those patterns as they move on are all very intentional. And we're not going to pick apart every detail tonight. Um, I'll, just, I'll just mention to you that this is a very rewarding place to do things like graphs and charts. It's a very rewarding place to pay a lot of attention and then think through the why because, because there's clearly a why. Okay. So, verse 8 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, that's actually nothing new, except for the context here. Okay, when God was calling Moses back in chapter four, he was saying, how are people going to believe me? And he was particularly talking about Israel. And so God gave him a couple of signs, and one of them involves this staff turning into a serpent thing. But here, he says, okay, if Pharaoh is resistant, this is plan A. This is where I want you to start. And so he lays this out, and then verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and all the magicians of Egypt, and also they did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, so in summary here, just as God commanded, they go, and Moses commands Aaron to use the staff. It becomes a serpent. And Pharaoh calls in all of his magicians, and they do the exact same thing. Except, Moses' staff eats them all, 
and then he picks it up and it's a staff again. No more, no more you know, wizard staffs, they're all gone. Um, and so there's a couple of things that are going on here. And the first that I want to mention is, although we already know about this, the verbiage just changed. And since you don't read Hebrew and I don't read Hebrew, you probably didn't know this. But the word that's used for snake back in chapter 4 and the one that's used here for serpent are not the same word. Um, here's what's intriguing. There's another time where, where Pharaoh and this word for serpent are referenced, and that's in the book of Isaiah. And in that case, guess who the snake is? Pharaoh, right? It's a derogatory term used for this Egyptian ruler by a later prophet. And why that's intriguing, and you can, you can imagine this with me, just think of Pharaoh sitting there, and he's got that hooded uh, ornamental headdress, right? What does it look like? Looks like the hood of a cobra, right? And that's, that's intentional, by the way. It's supposed to remind you of a snake. There's a correlation in Egyptian imagery between snakes and Pharaoh himself, okay? And so this is a perfect place to start because it's an intentional challenge to Pharaoh's power. And so he refers to the dark arts of Egypt and they come and do the same thing. And I don't know if you find that weird, but I want you to notice here that it doesn't tell us exactly what's going on here. It's just setting a standard. So, the, so uh, first, is Moses just another magician? Or maybe a better place to start is, are they actually conjuring snakes out of sticks here? Is that what's going on? In my opinion, in my opinion, every time the magicians do something here, they do it in the same way that magicians do something today. Okay, it's a scam. The difference is, the scam never works out the way that they intend it to. It's possible that there's something dark or demonic going on here. I, it's possible, and I'll, I'll add an asterisk to this and I'll explain it. It's possible there's some power in the gods of Egypt. Okay? This is why I say this, because the Bible goes on to explain that there is this spiritual reality outside of God himself. It labels it as demonic, it labels it as deceptive, but it basically says you shouldn't be surprised if Satan does stuff. You shouldn't be surprised if there's miracles that are actually false miracles. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation uh, or the book of Thessalonians, it, it says that those who don't receive the truth presented in Christianity, God gave them over to a deception, okay? And so there's this reality going on. So maybe that's what's going on. Nonetheless, the lesson here is that they've got nothing on what they're encountering. And so, yeah, they can make serpents. Now their serpents are gone, okay? They didn't see that coming. That wasn't in the script. Whether, whether they thought Moses was a conjurer like them or whether they thought he was an equal, it doesn't really matter. Either way, they're surprised by what this happens and will watch as this particular competition, Egyptian uh, magicians, that's really hard to say for a very strange reason, Egyptian magicians and Moses, we'll see this competition kind of ramps up over time. Um, but the other thing it does here is it kind of, like I said, it has this pharaoh imagery, it kind of sets the standard for where things are going, okay? Here, Pharaoh resists. Notice what it says in verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Can you understand kind of why? I mean, it's, it's in the text why. He's not as impressed as he could have been, because his magicians can do the same thing, Okay? So this is just the starting place, and it lays out the pattern here. Um, but what we'll notice in the plagues that follow is there's an escalation. 
Okay, at first things are just a nu- nuisance, and then they become dangerous, and then they become deadly. At first they're things that even the magicians can do, at least in part, and then it's things the magicians can't do, and then the magicians are so messed up by the plague that just hit them, they won't even appear in public. Okay? There's this escalation that goes on in these things, but it starts here. Um, now, the only other thing that I want to mention is, it says in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And if you go back just a couple of chapters, twice already God has, says, has said, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. In fact, we've already seen it play out, play out once as Moses goes before Pharaoh without signs, without wonders, and just says, thus says the Lord, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, right? And he ramps up the hard work for the, um, for the uh, Israeli slaves uh, and makes life more difficult, and Moses comes back and goes, wait, God, I thought you were going to deliver, and you've only made things worse. And effectively, in that context, God says, Moses, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, but especially for the Egyptians. And what he says is, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to listen to you. Okay. Now, here, notice the text in verse 13 says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, this phrase is going to be repeated almost throughout the plagues, but it's going to change. And so in the beginning, the emphasis is going to be over and over again that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In the middle, and not exactly, like not first three plagues and then next three and then final, it's actually kind of interspersed. But the majority of references to Pharaoh hardening his own heart are in the first few plagues. The majority of references to Pharaoh's heart growing hard are in the middle. And the majority of the references of God hardening Pharaoh's heart are at the end. Okay? Now, aside from both of those things, I'm just trying to get all the facts on the table. The very first reference to Pharaoh's heart at all is when God says, I will harden his heart. And the very first reference to something happening in Pharaoh's heart in present tense is right here, where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Okay? So these are the facts. We'll come back to that later, but I just want you to notice it up front. It's clearly a major point that Moses is trying to make in this book. He wants us to think not just about the plagues, not just about the, uh, the Jews, not just about the Egyptians, but also about the heart of Pharaoh. And so he's going to bring it up over and over and over again. So let's look at the first plague here, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. That they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, uh, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Okay, now this is all the preparatory, right? He says, When Pharaoh is going out to the Nile in the morning, meet him there, remind him that God has requested his people be let go, remind him that he's been disobedient, and then say, therefore, because of that, here's what I'm about to do. But it's important that we register the reason. 
Okay. The reason, once again, we find in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. When Moses first comes and makes his request, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I would do this? I don't know the Lord. And so one of the whys behind the plagues, in fact, one of the whys behind the hardening is to show Pharaoh, and we'll see later, because this This you is in the singular. Later it's in the plural, so it speaks to all of Egypt. To show people who God is. Okay, so that's one of the things that are going on. And so Pharaoh's resistance here is because Moses is just a snake charmer. He's a little bit more clever than my guys, but that's all he is. You know, it's a different ingradiation. And so he says, okay, you want to know who I really am? Let's talk about the Nile. Now, if you've been studying along with me, that you, then you know that one of the things that I love about Hebrew authors in particular is they're capable of doing more than one thing at the same time. And this is a perfect illustration of that, okay? Because the significance of the Nile in Egypt can't be understated, right? The Nile is the source of life in the Egypt, When there was a famine in Israel all the way back in Genesis chapter 14 and it says that, sorry, chapter 13, and Abraham went to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt is sustained by the river Nile. If you read the old Egyptian mythology, where do people come from? They're birthed out of the Nile. In fact, the flooding of the Nile in Egyptian mythology was divine itself, okay? And so this is a battle of the gods. And that's one of the things about the plagues. Why frogs? Because of the Egyptian god Hepti. Okay? Why, I mean, so many of the plagues, not all of them, but so many of them directly confront the pantheon of Egypt. Okay? And remember, just as an aside, that Pharaoh is part of that pantheon. He is known as the son of Ra, the living embodiment of the sun god himself. And so these are the things that are going on. When the sun becomes darkened, right, for three days, that's Ra being challenged. When the Nile is turned to blood, that's the divinity of the Nile being challenged. But not only that, think of this. Think of the fact that this is Moses. And remember where Moses' life life begins, right? At three months old, his mother finally does what Pharaoh, not this Pharaoh, but an earlier one has required and throws her son into the Nile. But he builds him, she builds him a boat, right? So that he survives and he's picked up by this Egyptian princess and he lives, okay? And so all the, is, is, um, all the Jewish children were to be fed to the Nile. All the boys were to be fed to the Nile. And here, that's the battleground. Here, that's the place. In fact, the, the, the boy who was to be given over to the power of the Nile, is now about to show that his God has power over that self-same Nile, okay? All of this should be in your mind while you're looking at these things playing out, okay? Because they would have been in Moses' mind. They would have been in Egypt's mind. They would have been in Pharaoh's mind. Just another aside, will you recognize the timing? When does this happen? It says, first off, it happens in the morning. That phrase will occur again. Um, Second, it says, while Pharaoh is on his way to the Nile. Why is Pharaoh going to the Nile? Probably to bathe. If you want to say to fish, fine. It doesn't really change the point. The point is, the, uh, his day is about to change drastically. Okay. So, what does it say is going to happen here? It says, not just the Nile, but did you notice in verse 19? 
And the Lord said to Moses, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters, plural of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, all the pools of water so that they may become blood. Okay, so all of the water is going to become blood. Now, does this mean blood like what's running through your veins? It possibly does, okay? This is also the way that the Hebrews would talk about something turning the color of blood, okay? I don't think it's something we have to be dogmatic about. Either way, it says that whatever happens to the river, it's going to stink, it's going to kill the livestock, and it's not going to be drinkable. Okay. Now, there are those who have cleverly noticed that upstream from the Egypt are red, sandy shores, and that every once in a while, because the weather's really bad in, in, in their season, the river washes out red. Okay. Now, the problem with trying to say that's what happens here is, is it doesn't really solve anything. It doesn't explain how all of the water in their pots and vessels that have already been taken out of those rivers suddenly become red. It doesn't explain why the fish suddenly die, okay? And so, so we've got to watch out for this idea, and I'll come back to this later because people have pondered over these things. Um, but whatever's going on here, it takes this source of life and makes it a source of death, okay? But as an aside, as we'll see in just a second, this doesn't put them without drinking water for a week. That's important to notice. They have a way to get drinking water that doesn't involve these things. This is a shot across the bow, okay? It's not dangerous. It's incredibly remarkable, one, and it's also super annoying, two, okay? So this is what he's supposed to do. It says it'll happen even in the vessels of wood and stone. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But it says in verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Okay, two things. One, we have that same question we already talked about. Does that mean that they did the exact same thing? And then secondly, where did they find clean water to do it to? Okay, now that problem's going to be solved in just a second, so we can leave it there. But what I want you to notice here is what they don't do. They don't bring about clean water, right? They don't fix the problem. If anything, they just make it worse. But more likely, like I said, I tend to think of these guys like the magicians we know. This is an, this is an episode of red dye in the sleeve. Okay? They're scrambling to keep probably not just their jobs but their lives keeping up with Moses. Okay? And so don't think that underhanded is somehow beneath these magicians to make sure that they survive and live another day. Um, but nonetheless, they do the same by the secret art. So it says Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And so they dig short wells. You know how in the beach, when you dig with your hands, eventually you get down to water? It's not the ocean, but it's obviously the ocean. It's the same way. They dig very shallow wells, and that's where they get their water for. Verse 25, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, there's not a lot of time stamps in these chapters but there are a few of them and this is the first one and so a week goes by 
And we come to the second plague in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make the frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret art and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Okay, now, now we can get a sense for the pattern, right? We can see the similarities here. We see the, um, the paradigm, if you will. God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh. He says it and involves letting his people go. He says what's going to come upon them. Um, and here, the difference is that it's a plague of frogs. And as I already mentioned, uh, you may remember that the, the Egyptian gods are the bodies of men with animal heads. Okay? Uh, and so Hepti is this frog-headed god. And interestingly enough, he's the source of fertility. He's, he's the source of life and children and these types of things. And so it's, it's, it's ironic here, not only that the problem with the frogs here is that they're tremendously multiplying and they're everywhere, right? It says that they're, you know, in socks and shoes, they're in their beds, they're in their closet. Uh, they even find them in their oven, okay? What, what type of places do frogs like? damp places okay the oven is the driest place you can think of in Egypt and even there there are frogs and they're kneading bowls um, it is possible I have not been able to track this down I know I read it somewhere once it is possible that frogs were the type of thing that like cows in India were sacred which makes this a lot funnier um, but nonetheless even if they're dealing with the frogs themselves it's an impossible problem because of its scale um, but once again, it's merely an annoyance. It's super gross, but it's, it's really just annoying. Nobody's lives are on the line with this plague. On the other hand, if somebody came to you today and said, tomorrow, your entire house, your entire city, in fact, the whole state of Washington is going to be filled with frogs, and then it happened, you'd perk up and pay attention, okay? Um, and so verse 8. Uh, first off, the magicians do the same thing in their secret arts. Once again, they can't get rid of the frogs. They don't even try, but they say, yeah, we can make frogs too. Okay. Verse 8, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I get where Pharaoh's coming from. Okay. He, he may be able to dig wells and get water, he can probably just retreat to his palace and get away from the smell of the Nile. You know, but when frogs are everywhere, I, I just can't imagine. I, there are plenty of places where I like to find frogs. There are way more that I would be disturbed finding one. Okay? And so he comes and he says, okay, I'm tapping out. I'm done. Please plead with your God to get rid of this. Do you see what he recognizes? This is not just Moses the magician. You talk to your God. You take care of this issue. And then I will let your people go. Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. 
okay? And so it's wordy and polite, but effectively what Moses says here is, so that we keep the train going, that God is God and that you know it, you tell me when the plague's going to stop. You put it on the calendar, okay? And this is actually a pretty clever apologetic, right? He takes it out of his hands entirely, and, and he basically says, pick a card, any card, okay? Now, I have heard sermons on the fact that Pharaoh chooses tomorrow as if Pharaoh doesn't care enough to even have this be dealt with immediately. Uh, which I just think is ridiculous, okay? The, 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 um, the thing is, tomorrow is probably the most natural, fastest answer, not a delay until, well, I'd like one more night sleeping with frogs, please. That's probably not the idea that Pharaoh is about here. But he just says, he says tomorrow, okay? So, verse 10, he said tomorrow, and Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Okay, what was it last time? So that you may know the Lord is God. And now it's so that you may know no one else is God, that no one is like the God uh, of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews. Verse 11, the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from the Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Just a side note, that's a reversal from what we've been reading, right? It's been, and Moses did according to the word of the Lord. But here Moses prayers, and it says, God did according to his word. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Okay? And so the next day comes and they wake up and all the frogs are dead everywhere. Now it's not, there's no more living frogs, there's just dead frogs, okay? And once again, this is, this is an intriguing nuance on the fact that this is a fertility god, right? And now it's just piles of death and stench, okay? And so verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so what he was really interested in was not submission, but getting rid of the issue, right? And so as soon as he realizes the frogs are over, he goes, okay, that's dealt with. I'm no longer going to keep my word, okay? Now, I want to cover this last plague before we slow down for a second, and that's the third plague, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast, and all the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, now the nine plagues leading up to the tenth happen in cycles of three. And so every first one happens at the morning. Every second one happens in the court of Pharaoh. And every third one happens without conversation. Okay, the third one every time is just something God does. He doesn't ask. There's no dialogue with Pharaoh. He does it, okay? Um, And so that pattern is a three-plague cycle, and this is the last piece of the plague. Now, the other thing here is it mentions that this was was gnats 
and that they came up out of the dust and it was as if the dust had come to life. That's what it means when it says that all of the dust of the land became gnats. Okay, it doesn't mean transformationally, but there were so many of them everywhere you looked, it was just crawling with gnats. Um, and the word here is a general one. Um, Hebrews don't have a word for fruit fly. They have a word that means small biting insects. Okay, and so that's gnats, it's mosquitoes, which we know exist in Egypt. Um, but whatever it is, uh, here it is. And once again, notice that this involves pain. Like I said, the word implies biting mosquito. So this isn't just swarms of irritation. This is, this is biting. Um, but nonetheless, it's not life-threatening. It's just massive. And it mentions here that this is the first place where the magicians have nothing to offer. One commentator I read said, it's pretty easy to train snakes and frogs. It's really hard to train gnats. Uh, whatever's going on here, right, they're starting to tap out on their ability. The uniqueness of Moses and his God is, is growing. The gap is widening here. Um, so, here we've finished off the first three-plague cycle, and the cycle begins again. Verse 20, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning to present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, sound familiar? Right, Just like the water being turned to blood, the first plague, it's early in the morning, go out to the river. Okay. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Okay. Now, once again, it's a broadening, that you may know who I am, that you know, may know there's no one like me, that you may know I'm the God of all the earth. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I mentioned to you that many of the plagues have direct combat with Egypt's religion themes. Another major theme of the plagues is that they interact with the deconstruction of creation. Okay, So there's sun and it becomes darkness. Uh, there are swarms of life. Uh, just a side note, interestingly enough, there was a whole camp of uh, Hebrew Bibles that mistranslated this flies as beasts. And there's a whole camp that believed that this was lions and tigers and bears, oh my, that were flooding into Egypt because of a mistranslation. Um, but nonetheless, here we have, we have flies, we've had fl- frogs. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing that God is sovereign over the life he's created, over the animals he's created. Um, as we look at other plagues, uh, hail, right? That the environment itself responds to God. There's this... Um, uh, destruction of plants both in the hail and with the locusts, right? And so God creates the plants on day four and he destroys them in these plagues. There's a lot of overlap in those things. But here we get the reason why. Because God is demonstrating that he is the God of the world, the creator, okay? Um, So another thing we need to mention here is what it says in verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Okay, and so here, he doesn't just make a distinction between Moses and the magicians. Now it's a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. And he says, so when the flies come, 
you're going to only find them where the Egyptians are living, but where the Jews are living, no flies. Okay? Now just remember that we're talking about A, the outside world. Okay? So these boundaries and borders, it's not like flies can't get there. Also, because it's worth mentioning and remembering, uh, in Egypt, in the 13th century, you don't have windows. Okay? If flies are outside, flies are inside. And it's pretty compelling to believe that because it's so hot in Egypt, airflow is even going to trump keeping flies out of your house. So you're not even going to put up a curtain, okay? Because you will bake inside your clay brick house in the Egyptian sun unless there's airflow, okay? And so this is a totally nasty thing, but for the first time here it says, I'm going to make a distinction. So that you know, right? Not just that I am God, but these are my people. So that you know that the Egyptians are the problem, so that you know that this is not merely a natural happening. Now, I told you there are those who have looked at the plagues for natural solutions, and one of the most interesting involves anthrax, okay? Uh, and, And here's how it goes. I'll walk you through the whole thing. So it starts with a Nile that kills fish, and interestingly enough, this is true, dead fish have a tendency to be in tremendously susceptible to anthrax. Okay? So then it gets spread from the dead fish Nile through the frogs into Egypt, into the houses, and gets into the bloodstream of both the animals, we'll get there with the dying of the livestock, and the Egyptians. And as a side note, anthrax in one of its forms is actually just something that causes skin anthrax and not death. Okay? Now, just as an aside, even if that's just an ingenious way of this happening, don't forget the fact that God is sovereign orchestrating these things just as much as if he conjures them out of thin air. There's going to be a hailstorm. That doesn't mean that God miraculously transports hail into the sky, right? It means he makes a hailstorm with the moving and the pressure systems and, you know, the water hardening into ice, all of those things, okay? Um, But more importantly... You cannot explain the division between Israel and Egypt through that. Uh, You cannot explain um, the timing, right? The frogs all conveniently die at the same moment of anthrax. Really? All of them? When Pharaoh sold? You know, there's so much more going on. You're not really going to get, A, you're not really going to have any history left if you naturalize this. So I've never understood why people feel the need to do this. If God's whole point here is to demonstrate that he is the God who created the world, then it really shouldn't be a place where we have beef that he couldn't have created or uncreated or, you know, sovereignly ruled over that creation. Um, But it is the theory that's come the closest. It still doesn't explain why we get darkness or hail because anthrax in any setting doesn't tend to cause either of those things, right? But it is intriguing. Um... So here we are again um, in, the, in the plague of flies. So he says, I'm going to set it apart. Verse 23, thus I'll put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Okay, and so here, Pharaoh's not given the choice, but he is given the memo. This goes down tomorrow. Verse 24, and the Lord did so. There came a great swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all of the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice your God within the land. Okay. Now, at first this sounds positive, but I want you to notice that it's not what God's plan is. He's hedging his bets here, and he says, Fine, you want a holiday? 
You want some time off from work? It's yours. Have a festival. Sacrifice in the land. Notice how Moses responds. Uh, Verse 26, but Moses said it would not be right to do so for the offering we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God would be an abomination to the Egyptians if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes. Will they not stone us? There's a couple of possibilities here. Maybe Moses is just being tremendously polite and logical. And so he's just pointing out, yeah, that's not really a good plan because as you already know, the Egyptians are not comfortable with our religion. And so what you're asking us to do is a death sentence, so we're going to have to pass. It's possible, but one of the things that I think is the hardest for us to read in Scripture, although it's incredibly prevalent, is this capability that God's servants like the prophets have to mock and to be cynical. Okay, And so, for example, when Elijah stands up against the prophets of Baal, and they're working their hardest, and they're cutting themselves through sacrifice, trying to get their God to respond, and they're crying out, and they're you know, working themselves into a fervor. Elijah shouts out, and he says, maybe Baal's on vacation, right? He's not making a real suggestion. He's mocking. Here, what I think actually Moses is doing is going, okay, you're going to give me a fake answer. I can give a fake answer, too. Right? You're going to tell me that, that uh, you know, this is some sort of compromise? Fine, I'll play that game. Right? It, I don't think he's being serious here. He's recognizing that this is not the offer. Even if what's going on here is Eastern bartering, it's still him drawing a hard no in Eastern bartering language. Okay? This is not going to work. Verse 27, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Now there's a difference there. There's a step forward in the progression. Here it's not just pray that it go away, it's pray for me. Okay? Pharaoh is starting to recognize that there's a personal component to this. Okay? Or... He's just that self-centered. And so all he really cares about is his fly problem. Okay? But nonetheless, he says, pray for me. Uh, Verse 29, then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Now notice here, he doesn't pray right here. He says, I'm going to go out. And the question is why? And there was one commentator that I thought had an interesting insight, okay? The flies are not the Jews' problems. Is it possible that Moses is walking out with like a visible force field of of fly-free airspace, okay? That this is just one more demonstration. That basically he can walk into the midst of the plague itself and pray there. It's at least possible, okay? It may just be the fact that as the Bible constantly maintains... The majority of our prayer lives are private. And so he's not going to do it right here and publicly. If you notice, the last time it said Moses went out and prayed, it doesn't sound like just an ask, like, hey God, would you take them away? Amen. He spends some time in prayer. Okay. And so maybe that's all that's going on here. But either way, he warns Pharaoh and he says, okay, I have your word. Don't go back on it again. He goes out. In verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord did as Moses asked and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not 
let the people go. Okay. Now, here's a good time to ask, what's going on here? Okay. We know the pattern. How do you think Moses feels about this? Right? Do you think he's walking in knowing, okay, this time it's going to be different? Is this really a Charlie Brown and a football being held by Lucy scenario? That he thinks it's going to go differently? Let me broaden it out. Does God know it's going to go differently? What is going on here? Okay. As I said, the delay that's involved in this, plague after plague, isn't just about getting Pharaoh to let up. I'll spoil the story for you. Pharaoh's going to let up when it's going to cost the life of his son. God could go right there. He could jump right there. In fact, it says earlier, and it says later in the plagues, that, that God is actively involved in Pharaoh's resistance, that he's hardening his heart. What is going on here? It's because the demonstration is the point. God is giving himself a stage. It's center stage. The light is bright, and he's bought out the entire week of shows. Okay? That's why the pattern is here. So, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. See that? We're in the... um, We're in the second plague of the second cycle, and so this is in the courtroom, um, just like we would expect into uh, Pharaoh's court. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And so here, the plague that's threatened is the death of all of their livestock. And we see once again, like we saw in the first plague from this cycle, an emphasis on the distinction that will be drawn between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Now, when it says uh, here that all the livestock will die... It doesn't mean each and every, absolutely all. Um, sometimes this phrase is just translated all kinds of, okay? Uh, here, it's just, it's just a hyperbole. It means a whole bunch of, okay? The reason I know that is because there's more livestock that will die later, okay? But it's consistent in the way that the Bible talks about these things to use all in this way. I'm just clarifying because someday, someday you're going to meet a person and all they know about the Bible is going to be that one thing. that The Bible says they all died and suddenly there were more to die later and they're going to say, aha. But that's not how the language works. Okay. Um, so nonetheless, here's the plague. Uh, and then verse... Oh, I'm wondering why I had a page turnover in the wind while I was not looking. Here we go. Um... Verse 5, chapter 9, the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel dead. Do you notice that? What does Pharaoh do here? He proves it. He goes, go, go, walk through the land of Goshen, see if you can find any dead animals. Okay, he wants evidence this time. He wants to know. But, verse 7, behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but 
the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Okay, now we're moving into the middle plagues, and so the, the verbiage more often is not that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but that his heart was hardened. Okay, so it doesn't give us the who. It just says that this is a happening. Okay, and so he did not let the people go. The sixth plague. Now, what happens in the third plague every time? It just happens, right? There's no conversation, there's no warning, and so we see the same thing here. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It should become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so here it's soot from the kiln that leads to boils, to... Um, uh, to gross skin sores all over the body. But I want you to notice here, there's one other element of the plagues that we haven't touched on, okay? We saw that it's a challenge of the Egyptian religion. We saw that it's a reference to God as creator. Here's another one. It's a judgment on the Egyptians, okay? It's difficult sometimes to read about plagues and consequence and judgment. The story is like Sodom and Gomorrah or the destinies that God lays out for the enemies of Israel in these things, but you have to remember that that's in a much larger context, okay? And so, for example, um, with the Canaanites of the promised land who are living right now in these days in the land that God is going to take Israel to, with the genocide that happens as Israel comes in and wages holy war, you have to keep in mind that constantly Genesis, Exodus, Numbers all reference the fact that God isn't going to let it happen now because it says that their time for judgment isn't ripe yet. God is constantly and continuously patient. In fact, in the book of Numbers, Israel balks before they go into the land in unbelief, and so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Did you know in that passage it says that one of the reasons is because it's still not time to bring judgment on the Canaanites? Listen, this is hundreds of years of Canaanite history where they never repent, where they continue on and get worse and worse. Okay? By the time that God deals with it, the religion of the Canaanites has divulged to gods like Molech, where you take your living infant children and lay them on a burning altar and offer them to your God. Okay? But there's so much patience involved. Think of Nineveh. All Jonah wanted for Nineveh was what they deserved. Not just as his enemies, but as what their people, Assyria, had done to Egypt in the past, were going to do to Egypt, were currently doing to other countries. The Assyrians were savage, okay? And God says, no, they repented, right? No judgment for them. So there's that context. But the other one is, is the fact, you have to remember here, that Egypt has been enslaving an entire race of people to build their buildings, to persecute as they see fit, um, to operate as their taskmasters, and God cares about the oppressed. Now, why am I telling you that all here? Because where do the boils come from? The soot from the kiln. What do you use a kiln for? Baking bricks. Okay, the source here is pointing to the problem. It's a reminder of the consequences of their actions. They have enslaved these people, the Jews, and God cares. And so he's doing something about it. Um, and so uh, 
Verse 10, they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Once again, no discussion, just demonstration. Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. This is the last reference to the magicians, and they've already tapped out and said what Moses is doing here is the very finger of God. But here they can't even be in public because they're so, uh, they're so diseased by these boils. Uh, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Let's continue on here. So this is the first of the third cycle, seven, eight, and nine. Now I want you, well, we'll deal with it as we look at it. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, okay, once again in the morning, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Okay, now a couple of things. I want you to notice an escalation. First one, it says so that you may know there is none like me on all the earth. It takes all the statements that we've seen beforehand and crams them into one place. The second thing I want you to notice is that he says, I'm going to send all my plagues on you. Do you know what that is? That's escalation. Okay, there's been kind of a ramping up of the plagues, but these last three are super serious. Okay, Um, two of them because they bring human death. And one of them, because it's literally the sun disappearing for days, okay? Um, and so, so here he basically says, the game is being ramped up, okay? The danger is coming forward. Um, these last ones are worse. And then notice what he says in verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut, cut off from the earth. And he says, I could have been done with this already. Right? I could have um, I could have rolled these out earlier, but I didn't. But notice the reason. It's not here merely that God is merciful, but it says here, verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay? And so he says, the reason I've delayed is because I've raised you up to make my name known. Now, just a side note. The most likely way to read this raised you up is what? That that's why he's on the throne, okay? There is another way to read this, and, and this is not just a suggestion. This is actually the way the word's used in other places in Scripture. It actually may mean I held you up, as in I didn't let you faint, as in I didn't let you fall over, as in the reason why you're still standing is because I'm strengthening you to resist me further, Okay? And so it might not talk about why Pharaoh's on the throne, but why he hasn't relented, okay? Now, he adds on this in verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Simply put, the plagues have demonstrated that God is the God of Israel and Pharaoh is not. And every time he says, no, you live by my command, he's denying that reality, and that's what's referenced here, okay? Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Interestingly enough, that phrase, from the day of the founding of Egypt until now, is a common phrase in Egyptian writing. 
Okay, it's a way that they talk about the whole history of Egypt. In fact, it's, it appears to be a way they talk about the whole existence of the world. Okay, and so Moses picks up the language. God, through Moses here, speaks, and he says, this hailstorm is going to be different. It's going to be unique. And so he says in verse 19, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Once again, things have changed. Remember what was going on in the middle three plagues? I'll make a distinction between my people and Israel. And so what we would expect is that the hail won't fall on the land of Goshen. That's not what it says. It says any of you who bring your livestock in will survive. Any of you who stay indoors tomorrow will live. Do you see what he's doing? Here he's giving a choice for all of Egypt to respond to the reality that God is God. Let me just remind you here that Pharaoh has been hardening his heart, that Pharaoh is resistant. That doesn't mean the Egyptians are. Okay, And so here's the first place where he gives them enough information that anyone who wants to opt out of this particular judgment can do so. Okay, So Uh, Verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Okay, this is important because when Israel leaves Egypt, they don't leave alone. One of the things that God is doing here is not just breaking the pantheon of Egypt just to show that he can do it, but because He wants the Egyptians to know that he's the one true God. And here he starts to give them the opportunity to enter into a relationship with the one true God, a relationship of trust. Okay. So verse 23, then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continuously in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail. When it says fire flashing continuously, the the phrase there, the idiom there means fire originating all over the place, okay? Most likely this means lightning. In fact, in the Psalms, in Psalm 29, where David is watching a storm layout, it talks about... um, It talks about fire in the midst of the storm. It seems like this is just the Hebrew expression for what lightning is, okay? And so this is a hailstorm with lightning. Now, if it is a hailstorm with fire, like the Ten Commandments films would would interpret this, that's possible too, and it's way more striking, is it not? Because you've got frozen and fire mixed. The miraculous nature of it would be emphasized, but most likely here, that's a reference to lightning. Um, So verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So it doesn't hail in Goshen, but anyone outside of Goshen who brings their livestock in and stays out of the weather survives. Verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, do you see the progression there? First it was, pray that this stops. Then it was, pray for me. And now Pharaoh says, my bad, I have sinned, right? He says, this time I have sinned. He says, God is right. I and all my people are in the wrong, okay? 
This is the most repentant Pharaoh ever sounds. He says in verse 28, Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunderous hail. I will let you go, and you will stay no longer. So here, have you guys ever read G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday? I'm going to spoil it for you right now, because if I suggest you read it, most of you won't. Um, It's about a man who's an undercover cop who accidentally infiltrates the head anarchist group in London, who have been bombing government buildings and all these things, and just by happenstance ends up being elected to Thursday, one of their top seven officers. Okay? And what happens is as he's pretending to be one of the head anarchists and interacting with these other heads, he discovers that everyone he chases to arrest is another undercover cop. And when you read the book, every time you get to another one, you're like, oh, it couldn't be another cop. And then you go, it is! And it shocks you every time. I don't know how Chesterton does it, because the pattern is so clear. Okay? But every time, you're amazed. Here is a tool that works the same way. We go, maybe this time is it is. It is different. Maybe here, Pharaoh is finally tapped out. I mean, listen to his language. This sounds like biblical confession. I have sinned. I am in the wrong. God is in the right. But, but it doesn't last. And so, uh, verse 29, Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Now, I don't know what you thought of my whole protected airspace fly thing with Moses in prayer, but here it's evident, right? He walks out into the hailstorm, all the way out of the city into the open land in the midst of this storm to pray, okay? It's striking. It should be. Uh, Verse, uh, then the thunder will cease, there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God, okay? And so Moses says, look, I'm going to do it, But I've figured you out, Pharaoh. I know what's going on here, and I know that this isn't real. And so it adds, as an aside here, in verse 31, the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emner were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Now, why does it tell us that? Okay, first off, it means that the Egyptians are going to continue to survive, because their next crop which comes in a month later, is young enough that it's not knocked out in this, and so it's going to continue to grow. It's bruised, but not destroyed, okay? Or maybe it's it's seeded, but it hasn't grown up out of the ground yet. But there's another thing I want to point out here. Why is this detail here? Okay? Because this actually happened. The author feels the need to clarify here because he knows there's going to be a misunderstanding for the original audience. In fact, that's another reason why he says this. It's because we would read this and we wouldn't even think about what's left to eat because none of us have ever farmed in our lives. Okay, And so he writes, knowing his culture, but nonetheless, this detail is here because it's just, it's just, um, it's what we call an unimportant eyewitness detail. Have you ever read an eyewitness account? inevitably, as they're talking about things, they will give you details that don't matter. They'll tell you why they were going where they were going. They'll mention, you know, some other thing they saw along the way. They'll mention what they happened to be thinking at the time. Why? Because they were there, and that's part of their story. 
And so in the same way here, we have this detail just thrown in here. It also, another side note, tells us what month this happened in. And I don't know what it is, and even if I did, I'd have to translate it back to old calendars, which I'm not going to do for you. Um, But if you want to know, here's a very strong seasonal time stamp. So, verse 33, Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the seventh plague is the longest. And the reason it's the longest is because it's the first in this final cycle. And what it does with all of that length is it makes bigger every piece of this as it goes along. So it's no surprise that the one place that these chapters are quoted in the New Testament, it quotes this passage, chapter 9, okay? And that's in Romans chapter 9 when Paul is talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But the reason he goes here and not any of the other references is because this is literally the epicenter of the story. It's the one where all of the meaning is held, okay? Now, we'll return to it, but I'd like to get through chapter 10 first. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. More new information. Who will know because of these plagues? Israel and their children. So that you may know Pharaoh, that you may know Egyptians, that the whole world may know, and now so that you, Israel, may know. Okay? Let me just point out to you that this history of what happened in Egypt is written down originally for who? For Israel. Right? This record is made. This will come up extensively next week as we get into Passover. It's written down so that they may know what God did so that they may know the God they present tense serve, what he did in the past, so that they might know who he is, okay? And so that's emphasized here. I also want you to notice, we'll read it again, look at 935. So the heart of Pharaoh, uh, sorry, let's jump back in verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail, the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and then look at 10.1, go, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. All three of them, all within two verses. Okay? Like I said, this is the epicenter of the story. This is where the themes come together. This is where the heart of the matter is. This is where all of the pattern points to, if you will. But chapter 10, verse uh, 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. They shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And so first it's the mother of all hailstorms, and now it's the mother of all locust invasions. Okay. Now, recognize the threat here. Nobody's going to die in this, but this is going to eat the last of the crops. Everything that survived in the hail, 
this is going to be devoured. Everything that's left on the trees, it's going to be eaten, okay? And so this is a very serious plague. Verse 7, Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Okay, and so here his advisors come to him and they go, really? Are you going to stand against him again? Have you not seen the pattern? We're all watching, right? Remember here, it's only Pharaoh that's the focus of this battle. Now everyone else is pretty convinced. And on top of that, they say, we have nothing left. All of Egypt is ruined. It's time to cut your losses, okay? What good is a whole nation of slaves when we are going to die of starvation? And so... uh, Verse 9, Moses said, we will, uh, sorry, we got to get this at the end of verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Okay, and he says, okay, fine, you got to go out in the wilderness. Who's going with you? And so um, Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said with him, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. So what happens here, okay? Once again, we see Pharaoh going halfway. And so he's thinking here, well, some of you can go. But he asks it in the same Hebrew bartering way, and he says, how many? Who? And Moses presses all the way to the end of the bargain, and he says, all of them, including our animals. And (laughs) Pharaoh responds, the Lord be with you if I ever let you go. Here's what he's saying. Effectively, he says, if that happens, it's because God's taken you out of the land, which is super ironic in the circumstances, okay? Not only is that going to be what happens, but what does he think is going on here, you know? He basically says, God is going to have to do a miracle for that to happen, you know, and he laughs to himself. It's totally crazy. And he adds here, and he says that you would ask something so crazy just shows that you have wickedness in mind. And so here he blames Moses, when it's this Pharaoh who has deceptively given them permission and taken it back, this Pharaoh who has enslaved and continued to hold on to these people. So, um, 11, no, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are, is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And so he finishes and he says, only the man and he drives them out. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locust. The locust came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has never been for been before nor will ever be again they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened they ate all the plants of the land and all the fruits of the trees the hail had left not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you now therefore forgive my sin please only this once and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death for me. So not only do we have confession here, but we also have him asking for forgiveness, right? It's amplified one more time. Verse 18, so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not 
let the people of Israel go. Okay, so in chapter 10, it opens with, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart, and it ends with, this plague ends with, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so this plague just comes in, devours everything, and leaves. And I could have, but I didn't uh, look up the statistics of how quick it takes for a plague of locusts to devour a field. You can find those answers if you want. It's pretty impressive. It's incredible how much damage they can do and how quickly. Verse 21. Here we have the ninth and final plague of this three-plague cycle. So once again, no warning, no dialogue, just launched. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Literally, a darkness that you'll be groping in, okay? We, we talk, too, about a darkness so thick you can feel it, but we probably do it because of these English translations. It's probably a modern idiom because of ancient English Bibles. But what it really means here is that you have to feel your way through the dark, okay? We would say today, so dark you can't see your own hand, okay? Um... And so, verse 22, Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all of the people of Israel had light where they lived. I don't even know what that looks like, okay? But that's how extreme this thing is. The natural universe as we know it, where the sun rises and gives light, where darkness is everywhere because the sun is nowhere. All of that breaks down. And I want you to notice that this is extremely a culmination. Like you might think, three days of darkness, what's the big deal? Okay, first off, we have electricity. And so I think we forget what it would be like. It's not mentioned that it's going to be three days of darkness. This is just something that happens for three days. Can you imagine that some of them are wondering if it's ever going to change, right? Is this the new reality? Is this the new normal? And on top of that, um, recognize as well that from the creation story standpoint, this is the final undoing, right? Where does God begin? With light and darkness, and now he takes it away, okay? Where creation begins is now gone. That's, that's the emphasis that's set here. And then, like I said, miraculously, it says, in the land of Goshen, in their houses, they have light. And so, um, verse... 24, Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord with your little ones. Also may go, they also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Okay, his kung fu death grip here is loosening. He's only got one card left to play in this long Hebrew, or in this long Eastern bartering system. And he just says, just leave your animals here. Okay. Um, But, verse 25, Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care you never see my face again, for on the day that you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, as I say, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, one quick thing. Moses is going to have one more conversation with Pharaoh in the next chapter, but it's the same conversation. Because we're going to pause right there and come back. You're going to go, wait a minute. I thought he wasn't going to see Pharaoh again. That's true. Once he leaves, he hasn't left yet. Okay, and the second thing is, when Moses picks up on this threat and he says, that's right, you'll never see me again, he's recognizing that the story is coming to an end. Okay, that Israel's with one last plague going to go out uh, and never be seen again. 
And so he's pointing to it coming to a climax. And so what do we have here? We have nine plagues, and what happens in chapter 11 and chapter 12 is all preparatory for the final plague, okay, which is why we're going to pause here. And because it involves the Passover and this great festival that reminds Israel of the Exodus, um, we're going to just camp there next week. But it's also a structural reason. We've seen here a pattern, and it's been repeated in threes three times. And it's escalated along the way until the beginning of creation itself. The day one reality of what God did, let there be light, is now reversed. Okay? It's all preparing for the big final act. But we still have to ask a question about Pharaoh's heart. We've seen here a lot of themes of what God is doing. He wants Pharaoh to know. He wants all of Egypt to know. He wants Israel and their descendants, which, side note, includes us, to know who God is. And so he, he delays the end, and he extends it, and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. What do we do with that? Okay. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not actually sure I can do this tonight, but I find it's also often helpful to make things worse before we make them better. And here's what I mean. I mean, I could give you some shallow, crappy answer that will satisfy you until things get worse. Or we can cut open with a laceration, show how deep the cancer goes, and then have a real operation. Okay, so with that being said, I just want you to know this because some of you are going to wilt under this passage. Um, Let's turn over to Romans chapter 9. Paul here is talking about the fact that God had promised salvation to Israel, had sent the Messiah just as he said, and most of Israel not only rejected him and crucified him, but after he was raised, continued to reject him. And so now the Gentile church was growing, and he's dealing with this, and he asks actually what's a really important question. If God wasn't faithful to Israel, how can we trust his promises to us? But as he's walking through this, his primary goal is to show that God has done rightly and been just in all of this. And so pick up in verse 14 with me, and this is what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say, me, say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out uh, of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Now, we're not in Romans 9 tonight, and there's a lot that I could say, but did you pick up some of the verbal cues from the entire Exodus narrative that we've been looking at? What if God wanted to do this to make known to the vessels of mercy, it says here, 
right? It says, not only does God show mercy on whomever he wills, which, by the way, is essential for it to be mercy. If anyone says, hey, wait, you owe them mercy, you don't understand what mercy is. Mercy means above and beyond justice, okay? So you can't say, I deserve mercy. You can't say that anyone does. And so when God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, that's a positive because we need mercy. And if there's no mercy, but the point is, it's not mercy if it's not mercy, right? But he goes on here and he points specifically to the story of Pharaoh and he says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so he shows mercy and he also hardens who he wants. And he pictures a response to that that goes, well, then why are you blaming me for being an awful sinner when God made me this way? Wouldn't you expect Paul to explain and go, here, you misunderstand me. Let me clarify. Instead, he doubles down and he goes, wait, who are you to talk to God like that? He says, can God not make one pot this way and another pot that way? Can the pot really say to the potter, why did you make me this way? For starters, that's where you have to begin. If you come approaching this trying to be the God of God, if you come approaching this and not recognizing that you are merely creature and he is creator, you're always going to start on the wrong foot. Okay? However, however, there is a few things I want to point out here. Once again, I just want to remind you of the facts. The Bible says three things about Pharaoh's heart. That it grew hard, that Pharaoh hardened it, and that God did. Okay? Another fact, before any of that happens in real time, God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, you can't just put them in a pile and count them and go, it says this more, so this must be what actually happened. You also can't say this is the one that comes first, because as I showed you, there's clearly a pattern in the passage. It's not one guy saying that God did it, and another guy saying that Pharaoh did it, and a third saying it's just something that happened. It's the same guy in a very structured and put-together passage trying to make a point, okay? So there's no easy outs to this. You're going to have to look it straight into the face. But a couple of things, a couple of facts you should keep on the table. One, this is not Pharaoh the benevolent ruler who suddenly wakes up being an awful dictator, is it? Okay. What happens here happens to someone who is deserving of judgment. Okay. Now, that may not provide you a lot of relief because biblically that's everybody. Right? That's just the general state of humanity. We're all in a place where we're deserving of judgment. But you have to keep that in mind. That this, is not, this, is, uh, this can't be reduced down. Now, even when he says here this, this illustration of the pots in Romans 9, um, I, I listened to myself teach this passage just to review. And I don't know where I came up with this, but it's helpful. Many of us are concerned about animal rights. I don't think any of us are concerned about pottery rights, right? We don't tend to have marches or sign petitions because pottery is being mistreated. The reason I point that out is because we can read this and it makes it sound like that's all we are. We're just pottery. That's not the point. There's a difference between human beings and pottery, but there's also a similarity and it's simply this, you are made. You have a maker. That's the point here, okay? Now, another thing that I want to add, what God does with Pharaoh is progressive, is it not? Do we see here just a a switch thrown? 
No, even the way the passage is built, we see a progression. We see him having good reasons to resist in the beginning and absolutely no reason and no counsel at the end. We see, right, we see a progression in this thing, okay? And I want to point this out to you that for everybody, for every human being, there is this reality, that the starting place of human life is one in rebellion against the living God. And that at some point, there has to be a threshold. C.S. Lewis uses the imagery of a door. And he says, are you okay with a God who knows when it's okay to shut the door because it will never be walked through? And it doesn't really matter where you put that threshold. You have to recognize two things. That it's totally appropriate for that to be the case. And second you have no idea where that line is. I told you this story is unique. One of the ways it's unique is it's one of the few places where we see God proactively working in this way. And so you can't look at another person's life and go, nope, it's over. There's no turning around for them. There's no repentance. They've clearly crossed the threshold. There's no coming back. Paul knows that from personal experience. Mr. Breathing Threats Against the Church persecuting the church, putting them to death. But, but the last thing I would say about this is there are two realities that the scriptures maintain. On one side, God is sovereign. To say that God isn't in control is not the truth the Bible presents. And if anywhere shows it, it's the Exodus. And you don't even have to be a heart surgeon to see that, right? You see God operating at every level of nature, working through the whole story, okay? But it's true at every level. God is sovereign. The other side is man is responsible. That's the thing that, that uh, Paul won't allow to be a criticism here, that we're merely puppets and therefore we get a free pass, that's not something we're going to get away with. Now, for me, those operate as two brackets. The truth is probably rightly stated in a bunch of different ways that fit within those brackets. But anytime you swing outside one or the other, you get into wrong territory. So as soon as you say that God is not sovereign, you're right out. As soon as you justify and excuse his creation, you're right out. Now, I know that I can't necessarily reconcile those two truths for you, and I can tell you the things that make me comfortable and uncomfortable in that, but, uh, but that bracket will stand. Whatever I say about it, whatever my opinion, whatever your thoughts are, that bracket will stand. Um, but I also want to add, I also want to add that when you break the bracket, you lose something. You do. If God is not sovereign then how can you be sure in the circumstances you're in right now that it's all going to be okay? If God is sovereign, yes, it might be hard to recognize that the difficulties in your life and the awful and even the evil you're encountering from other people is coming from the hand of God, but it's a lot worse to assume that God was caught off guard by it. It's a lot worse to think that there's something else in the universe that God has to deal with. Okay, if God allows suffering in your life, if he puts evil in your life, that's why Paul confidently says just a chapter before this that we can believe that all things work together for good. That God has a purpose in this because this is part of his plan. 
So, let me just add one other thing, and it's going to sound like an escape hatch to some of you, but it's just a fact that I think needs to be on the table. The story of Pharaoh is not entirely and specifically a story about eternal judgment. Okay? It, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. This story ends in Pharaoh's death, so I don't have a lot of hope that things go otherwise. But it's worth keeping in the mind that what's happening is a public office and, and a period of time. It's a thing going on. Now, when we come to ideas like election and God foreordaining things, you can turn right to Romans 9. So I'm not necessarily escaping by saying that this is something God did in time and not something that he did before time. I'm not trying to escape. But it's worth keeping on the table um, what's going on here. But what is the point that Paul wants to make in Romans 9? And this is where we'll close. It's one that I think you'll find surprising. Listen again to verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He doesn't say, what if God, to demonstrate his goodness to the vessels of mercy, destroys the vessels of wrath? He says, endures them with much, much patience. I would argue that idea he's getting directly from the Exodus right? He had every right to bring judgment immediately and instantaneously on Pharaoh. Instead, he endures him. That's not the whole story, but it's a major point to consider, okay? It's through allowing Pharaoh to stand against him that God is known in the Exodus, okay? So, all of those facts are on the table, and that's where we're going to leave them tonight. I hope, I hope that you'll take some time and reread these plagues and think deeper. I hope that you'll look at what Paul says in Romans 9 and consider it. I hope you'll look for other resources uh, to do these things, but what I hope most is that you've seen tonight God's agenda is to show himself. That's the purpose of the plagues, it's the purpose of the entire exodus. It makes himself known. You want to know why we're reading this story today? It's because God wants you to know him as sovereign, as creator, as deliverer. And so he, he plays this out on the main stage and he orchestrates this so that we're not just groping in the dark wondering if there's a God or what he's like so that we understand his character, not merely his holiness and his justice, although that's also on display, but also the fact that he is a powerful deliverer, right? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And Paul talks about these things in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he's driven not to a conclusion, but to worship. And that worship is in the fact that, that your ways are incomprehensible. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his uh, judgments and his ways past finding out. We don't always understand, and you wouldn't be a greater God if we could solve you like a math equation. You are a greater God because you are God and we are not. You are a greater God because you are greater and better and more just and more merciful than we realize at the same time. You're more sovereign 
and yet more loving at the same time. You're more good than we can imagine. So I pray, Lord, that we would um, go in light of these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night.